we're going to be starting a new series today. We're going to be looking at、uh, four servant songs in the book of Isaiah, and、um, we're going to be looking at a couple of these in July, and then a couple more、uh, in September. And these are four、um, little mini vignettes, little songs that speak of the person of Christ.、Uh, many of you will be familiar with the fourth song in Isaiah fifty-three. You may be familiar with the words where it talks about Christ, how he pierced for our transgressions. Speaking hundreds of years before Christ's、uh, incarnation and before the crucifixion, but speaking with incredible clarity about how he would be crucified.、It、speaks about how he'd be buried in a rich man's grave. Of course, we know that Jesus was buried in the grave of Joseph of Arimathea, who was a rich man who had a family tomb. It speaks even of how he'd be numbered among the transgressors, and we know that Christ was was、uh, crucified on either side with criminals on either side of him. And really, what this is speaking to, and what these prophecies speak to, which are written hundreds of years before、uh, Christ's ministry on this earth, is really the way that the Bible is not、um, a set of different books, but is one book with one author behind the many different human authors. And even though they're writing in many places and many times, separated sometimes for hundreds of years, actually, when you look at it as a whole, you'll see that there is one author weaving one story through this book. And so, for those of you who are skeptical, saying how is the how can you believe that the Bible is God's word? Well, I would say actually, when you look at these prophecies, it's one of the reasons that gives me absolute confidence that God is behind these human authors. So we're going to look at these four、uh, prophecies over the next、uh, well, we'll look at one today, one next week, and then we'll look at a couple more in September.、Um, and really, I think they just give us a, a wonderful insight into the person of Christ and His ministry. So why don't you turn to Isaiah forty-two? And, and, and the context here is that the people are in exile. They've been sent into exile because of their unfaithfulness, and there's a sense of despair, of hopelessness. And into that hopelessness,、uh, Isaiah announces the great hero of history. So let me read to you Isaiah 42. Behold, my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth. And the coastlands wait for his law. The next few verses, God is speaking directly to the servant. Thus says God, the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people. A light for the nations to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord; that is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. And in these last verses, the Lord is speaking to the nations. 
Sing to the Lord a new song, his praise from the end of the earth. You who go down to the sea and all that fills it, the coastlands and their inhabitants. Let the desert and its cities lift up their voice. The villages that Kedar inhabits, let the habitants of Sela sing for joy. Let them shout from the top of the mountains. Let them give glory to the Lord and declare his praise in the coastlands. I think it's important that we look at this passage for a few reasons that I hope will become clear as we look at it. The first of which is this speaks into our sense of despair. This is really about giving us a a reminder of the hope that we have. Remember, I said that the context for this uh, song is, is written to the people of Israel and they're in exile. They're experiencing, they've experienced failure. They're exper- they've experienced the judgment of God who's exiled them away from their land and into, uh, they've been taken over by Babylon. They're in Babylon and they're lacking in hope. They're wondering what, what hope is there for the people of Israel? What hope is there for restoration? And Isaiah is speaking to them, giving them the ultimate hope in their despair. Of course, the circumstances we're in today give us all sorts of different reasons to share in their despair. I'm not just talking about coronavirus. Think about the rancor on social media. Think about the culture wars that seem so um, evident in front of us. Think about how our society feels divided, a reality of prejudice. Maybe leaders who don't seem to care or seem irresponsible. I'm talking globally. It would be very easy to kind of experience the same despair that these people are experiencing. And yet the servant, I want you to hear the the, the news of this servant and the hope that that speaks to us. The way it speaks to our longings for a restored and perfect world. Second reason I think this is really important that we look at is because it speaks to the way that many of us are feeling weary, feeling spiritually dry. You know, not least I think it's the challenge of not being together physically. um, That many of us are experiencing a kind of spiritual dryness. And yet this uh, passage describes a smouldering wick. Imagine for a moment your faith is like a a fire. Many of us will say, well, look, the the flames are absent. The embers are still there. And that's exactly uh, who this song is writing to in a way. It's a reminder of Christ's welcome to those who are feeling weak, those who are feeling weary. It's a reminder of the gentle servant and his desire to restore us. The third reason I want us to look at this passage is simply because it gives us a unique insight into the beauty of Christ. You may be feeling something of an apathy in your faith. Uh, Maybe you kind of joined us for this um, service out of a sense of duty. Well, I sense I want, as you look at this beautiful servant song, I think this should give us a kind of shot of spiritual adrenaline. See, God wants to stir our affections this morning. God knows how we're wired, that we are drawn towards beauty. And yet, I think it's this unique insight of the beautiful servant, his willingness to go low, to enter into our weakness, and yet his majesty and his, the, the global plan for restoring the world. When we see that beauty, our hearts will be stirred towards the living God. So this morning, I want to get inside this picture of the servant. I want to ask, who is he? I want to understand... Um, who the servant is, and then I want to show you his individual plan to gently restore you. And then I want to understand the, really the significance of his global plan for restoration, for establishing the rule and reign of God in the world. 
So first of all, then, who is this servant? Well, you'll see in this passage, there's something of a, a kind of divine paradox about the identity of the servant. See, on one hand, verse one, it's an, it's an announcement of a servant. He says, behold, my servant whom I uphold. You can see this servant carries the posture of a servant. He says he will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. He doesn't come violently asserting himself. No, he comes in quiet humility. He's not trying to drown out his enemies or control the public square. He comes in gentle humility. And yet this is in the announcement of a hero who will transform the world. You see the, 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 the note of justice occurring again and again in our passage. It talks about him establishing justice, not kind of just lending his voice to the cause of justice, but establishing justice on this earth. He'll bring around a transformation of society. This is the establishment of God's rule in society. You need to kind of to establish God's rule to, to kind of bring around this wholesale transformation in society is only possible for one who leads, who ones who is in charge of society. See that he has worldwide implications to what he's doing here. In verse four, it says uh, the coastlands wait for his law. Well, wait for his law really is actually more about trusting in his law. It's saying the nations till the ends of the earth will uh, worship God as a result of his work. So he's He's one of absolute global significance, one who's in charge. That's why some, one writer described it as the, this is an announcement of a servant king. And this is the divine paradox of the heart of Christ's ministry. He's a figure of totemic influence and he comes to earth as a humble servant. He achieves the results of one holding power, the results of a king but doesn't use the methods, doesn't uh, assert power over, doesn't take over in that way. He's the Lord's chosen servant. He's the rightful king over the whole earth. And yet he comes to the earth as a servant. I think Paul captures this uh, divine paradox so well in Philippians 2 when he says, Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. This is the rightful king of the whole earth, and yet he comes to the world as a servant, not violently asserting power, but on a humble mission of mercy. And right away, I want you to see the beauty of the humble posture that Christ takes. You see, I think humility is, is intuitively attractive. Think about for the moment when you've seen someone who carries a great deal of status or maybe a, a great deal of talent or significance. And, and when you see them, maybe on TV or maybe you've seen someone in person, uh, just rather than kind of asserting their significance and uh, esteem, actually going low and, and listening, taking the time to listen to someone or to talk to someone of, of, in, in the world's eyes of relatively little importance. It's, I think it's, you'll remember when you've seen that kind of thing, it's beautiful, it's attractive. I remember well, we worked for a company where the CEO was, was just like this. He was a very important man worth millions of pounds, but when he was in the, in the office, he was just going to have lunch with whoever and just listen, and, and, and you just got the po- with a kind of posture of wanting to learn from others. I remember thinking, that's just really attractive. And yet that's nothing compared to the humility of Christ. 
He's the Lord of Lords. He's the King of Kings. One day, kings will prostrate themselves before him. And yet he's not coming in pomp and ceremony, but taking the humble posture of a servant. This humility extends to a kind of radical willingness to give himself away. See, Jesus shows a a very different approach to the way that so many often in our world leaders will be seeking to kind of hold on to power and to protect uh, themselves and and their cronies. But Christ is willing to give himself away. He's not denying his authority, but he's willing to become a servant and ultimately to sacrifice himself. I think if you're not a Christian here, this this posture, this character that we see in Christ is, I think, the ultimate guarantee of why he can be trusted to lead you. But more than that, I think that this uh, servant posture, this character should radically shape our life together as a church. You see, this same servant ethic is, is, should be something of a foundational principle for how we do life together as a church. See, remember, we as Christians, we've, we're being conformed into the image of Christ. That's the reason why the first uh, time the early Christians were called Christians is they were being labelled as little Christs. And so just as Christ is the servant king, we become humble servants in his image. We're meant to embody the same kind of servant-like posture in our relationship together. Now, this is not normal. This is kind of, if you'd say to someone who's not a Christian, never heard of it, you say, why don't you be like a servant? It maybe even feels insulting. Certainly, it's not an attractive ideal in our culture. It means that the church will look very different to any other kind of organization. It will be not full of rivalry and ambition. Instead, it will be a mutual love and expressed in service to one another. Actually, the gospel frees us to take this posture of a servant to one another. Why? Because without the gospel, it's often the case that we will um, want to prove ourselves, to assert our own self-importance through our achievements and and sometimes in the way we interact with others, you know, uh, might kind of announce our achievements in some way, subtly or, or otherwise. But when we understand Christ's death, the significance of Christ's death for us, his love for us, the the new status that we have as sons and daughters of the living God, it strips away any desire to need to assert ourselves or establish our self-importance. Because in one sense, we have the the greatest mark of, of importance, so to speak, which is that Christ was willing to die for us. So we no need to prove ourselves. Instead, we can uh, use that newfound freedom to, to, to go low, to serve each other. This should shape our relationships together. I think about um, in Philippians 2, around that same uh, hymn that describes Christ's humility, Paul instructs the church to have the same humility as Christ. It says, being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind, do nothing from selfish ambition or or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. If you really think about what it means to, do, uh, to be a church, to, to actually um, spend time together, to really invest deeply in relationships together, then my, I would wager that you're going to come across conflict. That's just natural part of relationships with each other, that you know, we naturally think that our way of doing things is the right way. Um, we all have blind spots. We fail to see the obvious and other people point that out to us. We will hurt each other. And I think it's only through this kind of Christ-like humility that we'll be able to weather and work through that kind of conflict. It means when someone criticizes us, when someone points out some sin in us, we can say, actually, 
you know what, it's actually even worse than you have pointed out. If you really knew the real me, you would see much worse than what you've seen. It means, it's, it, means it actually pushes us closer together because we start with the assumption that we need other people. Because of this kind of Christ-like humility, we recognise that we need to live in community because if we don't, then we're just going to, we've got a myopic vision as individuals. We need others to reveal and to, to point out our blind spots. So this humility should, should radically change the way we relate together, but it also should push us towards each other in service and love. See, our life together is obviously more than simply just connecting with each other. Of course, um, right now, many of us miss that, and actually we feel the pain of not, even, of not being able to be together, and it's a wonderful thing. It's such an important part of being a family together. But it's actually even more than that. See, the Christ, the the servant king, is calling us uh, not just to kind of uh, spend time together, but to serve one another. In Galatians 5, he says, Do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. See, at this time of lockdown, it's so easy to retreat from one another, to kind of turn in on ourselves. And I think technology often encourages this. Our life becomes about me and my devices rather than me and my community. We kind of turn to a kind of selfish individualism. I'm sure that that's a danger for our society at large. And it's a danger for us as a church. The the way of Christ is is the opposite to this. See, I, I think at this time more than ever, we need to remember the call of Christ to humbly serve one another. As lockdown continues, folk are weary, tired, perhaps feeling burnt out. And actually, there's all sorts of opportunities to serve each other, to, to meet each other's physical needs, but, but also just to be a, a, a great spiritual encouragement to one another. Sending encouragement, encouraging notes, sending little gifts, praying for each other, calling folk in your life group who haven't been around for a few weeks, finding out how they're doing. Taking the opportunity to model the gentle love of Christ to one another to encourage each other, to keep on persevering through this time. As the church takes on Christ's humble posture, as we we love and serve one another, it will look beautiful and it will, will display something of the beauty of this servant king to a watching world. That's the servant king. But to really understand the servant, I think you need to understand his mission. And this can be understood both personally, individually, and also globally, his mission of restoration, of setting everything right. First of all, let's look personally. It's my conviction that this passage speaks loudly of Christ's uh, willingness, welcome, is welcome to sinners and his willingness to restore sinners. This is really about speaking about Christ's posture towards us. Verse three he talks about a bruised reed he will not break and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will not snuff out. See, these verses, what you want to hear in, these, in, these, in this verse is, is really the kind of extreme picture that's being painted. It speaks of a, a, a bruised reed, but the wording is not bruised. It's not kind of superficial thing. Actually, it's, it's a, you've got to imagine a kind of plant or a tree that's, that's almost completely destroyed, almost broken. And yet it's just on its, on its last legs. Well, think about a smouldering wick. You know, you've got a kind of a candle where the, the flame has almost gone out and maybe the, the, the wick itself is, is just red and you, you can kind of see the smoke changes at that moment. Speaking of one with, with weak faith, almost faith that's completely disappeared. That picture of bruised reed speaks of the way that 
some of us come to Christ, we almost feel very damaged by sin, both sin that we've done and sin that's been done to us. And what you've got to hear in this passage is, is really Christ's welcome to those who know that they are weak, those who know that they are sinners. In Hebrews 5, uh, it says, Christ can deal gently with the wayward and the ignorant. Christ welcomes those who know that they are weak, who know that they have sinned. But this is not just a welcome, but a restoration. Ephesians 5, um, Paul is giving a series of instructions to husbands. And he calls husbands to uh, cherish and nourish their wives. But of course, what you forget is that that set of instructions is saying, husbands, be like Christ. That husbands are imaging Christ to the church. What it says is that Christ doesn't just uh, welcome sinners, but he cherishes and nourishes sinners. That's what Christ does to his bride. He delights to restore and to feed his church. He doesn't send you away saying, go and deal with your sin. And when, you, when you've uh, dealt with your sin, then you can come back to me. No, he instead, he, he welcomes you, he draws you to himself. It's the op- very opposite to what many of us have in our mind's eye when we think about coming to Christ when we've sinned. Maybe you imagine a kind of uh, a scowling Christ, uh, tapping his foot, saying kind of like, oh, not, not this again. Yeah, yeah, there's grace for you this time, but, but, you know, make sure you sort this out. It's the very opposite. It's Christ's welcome to sinners. When he says, come to me, all who are weary. Come to me, all who are weary of their battle with sin. See, this is very opposite of uh, the contemporary cancel culture that we see in our culture. You know, many of you are familiar with uh, J.K. Rowling, the author of the, the Harry Potter stories, and you might be aware that um, she's voiced some kind of relatively, um, what I would consider relatively orthodox understanding of gender, but that's uh, really been upsetting to many, um, and they would, uh, and she's been cancelled from Harry Potter uh, fan sites, she's been spoken out against by her actors, she's been publicly uh, shamed uh, because she disagrees with the progressive orthodoxy around gender. What's really fascinating, it's almost like saying because you have this view, you are cancelled. Because of this impurity, we cannot have you in the public square. But this is the very opposite with Christ. He sees the impurity in us and welcomes us in. See, this is a challenge to that. So often our, our contemporary, um, our challenge of, of condemning ourselves. Of, um, just, I think it's a, it's a great tool of Satan that he, he wants to um, leave believers in a state of condemnation, of being so aware of their own sin, and then of withdrawing from God. Of think about how you might feel like, oh, just because of what I've done, I, don't, I can't hope to, to pray or I can't go and meet or see another Christian when, I've, when I'm aware of, my, uh, of what I've done. And so often you get into a kind of spiral of sin and condemnation where in your sin you withdraw from God and then you go back to your sin to kind of make you feel better when actually the very thing you need to do is come into the presence of God and receive his forgiveness and grace. So this should change our, our posture towards our brothers and sisters who are struggling with sin. So easy to kind of respond kind of proudly or impatiently and kind of feel uh, fed up with them. Actually, in Galatians 6, he talks about restoring the brother gently, taking that same kind of gentle restoration approach that Christ takes towards us. You see, what this says, the kind of the corollary of this is that, that to come to Christ requires you to recognize your weakness. See, the great spiritual danger in all of this is that you deny your sin. There's nothing that will prevent you coming to Christ more than, a, than an assumption that you're fine without him. In Matthew 9, Jesus is asked why he's eating with tax collectors and sinners. 
He says, um, and he says, on hearing this, Jesus said, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. He said, I've not come to call those who are convinced they're righteous. I've come to call those who know that they are sick. The implicit warning is if you if you kind of pretend, try to pretend yourself for a moment that you're righteous and that you don't need Christ, that, you know, maybe if there is a God, I'm kind of okay and I don't really need um, He'd kind of accept me as I am. Then you've completely missed the point. See, I think one of the biggest barriers to faith is a pride of thinking that you're morally healthy when you're not. I remember uh, chatting to my family about uh, one of my friends who'd become a Christian, uh, become a Christian in prison, and, and God had just done a wonderful work in his life, and he'd uh, started his own business and was a, a really committed husband and father, and I was just telling him about all the things that God had done in, their, uh, in his life. My family aren't Christians. I remember my mum kind of saying, well, it's, it's wonderful that, that this has had this effect on Jamie, but on my friend, but why would, it, why would you think we would need this? Why would, you, why would we need this work? And, and in that very moment, she encapsulated that kind of sense of, well, you know, Jesus is for other people, for those people who really need him, those, people, those weak people. The gospel requires an acceptance of weakness. It requires us to destroy our sense of self-sufficiency. And what that really means is that you need to destroy that, that own, or you need, at least need to recognise that your self-perception is deeply flawed. We are experts at moral self-justification. You know, I remember one writer said that we are more like lawyers before a jury than scientists who are seeking the truth when we're thinking about, our, about ourselves, about our moral nature. It's so easy that we're trying to kind of gather the evidence to try and justify ourselves and prove our moral righteousness rather than looking at ourselves soberly. When we're angry, we say, well, this is righteous anger. That person did something against us. Or when we're um, when we're selfish, we say, well, it's me time. There's all sorts of different justifications that we, that we do. But I think we have an incredible ability to deceive ourselves about the nature of sin within. This is true for if you're not a Christian, that it will keep you from Christ. But it's true actually for a Christian. The great enemy of the Christian life is a sense of spiritual self-righteousness, um, which will often result in all sorts of things like a, a prayerlessness or a kind of just a judgment on, on other Christians, which will, might even lead you to withdraw from them. Actually, it says if you're feeling weak, either because of the awareness of sin or because of just a kind of a, a sense of physical frailty, then actually that's a really good thing. Let that weakness, that sense of weakness, thrust you into the presence of God. And what's more, when, you, when we consider the servant in this passage, it's not just that Christ welcomes the weak, it's not just that he wants to restore the weak, it's that Christ entered into our weakness. In verse 4, it says, he will not grow faint or be easily discouraged. But that word discouraged is actually a parallel of the previous verse when he talks about a bruised reed. It's saying something like he will not bruise easily or he will not falter even as he's bruised. The great, one, the great truth in this passage is that Christ was bruised to restore the bruised. In Genesis chapter 3, um, God is speaking to Satan and he's, he's promising it is in, in, in the form of a snake. And uh, he's promising, he says, Eve's he's talking about Eve's descendant, talking about Christ. He says, he shall bruise or crush your head and you shall bruise his heel. He's talking about the way that Christ will be bruised, will ultimately suffer death on the cross. Christ was broken 
so that the broken can be restored. Christ was bruised so that the bruised might be healed. This is not a, uh, this should not, none of this should be heard as a kind of license for sin, but an encouragement that Christ will restore you. See, in verse four, it talks about how he will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth. It can be understood globally, but I think this can also be understood individually. He's saying he will not give up until he has established his government in every part of your life. See, it's so easy as a Christian to feel like just when you see the sin around in your own life, when you see uh, your, your frailty to feel condemned and just feel like you want to give up. It's the very opposite of what he's saying. He's saying Christ will not give up until he has restored you completely to full health. You're healthy now and Christ has, has, has justified you in the sight of God. But one day you'll be totally transformed when Christ returns. Christ has promised to continue nourishing, nurturing, teaching, rebuking, shaping his bride, hit the church until he presents her spotless. There's no argument for passivity, but encouragement to continue working with Christ, continue to submitting your life to him in every way. It's a reminder for the Christian that may you, although you feel like a bruised reed, you feel like a, a smouldering wick, Actually, Christ specializes in taking smoldering wicks and turning them into full fires of faith. He specializes in restoring the reed and turning them into strong oak trees. Christ sees the impurity in you, but he doesn't give up. Think about the way you might see a, a kind of a, an ore where you see spots of gold, but you also see stone, um, stone or whatever. Actually, he's saying he wants to melt down that ore and refine you until you're pure gold. So I want you to hear Christ's call to restore you personally. But this is also, and there's a danger here that in you, when you look at this, that you, that you think just personally, that we focus on the Christ's restoring power. But actually, this is an announcement of Christ's plan to restore the world. Let's look again at the servant's mission. Three times in these four verses, he talks about establishing justice. It's easier to misunderstand this when he's talking about justice and think he's talking about kind of social justice, a kind of sense of equity and fairness for all people. And that, I think that is there in one sense. But really, we've got to understand the full understanding of what this word, this word justice in Hebrew mishpat, it's the same word used to describe God's judgment and God's law itself. Really, what he's describing is more than just a social concern. He's about establishing the rule and reign of God in the hearts of all people across the world. And with that, with the rule and reign of God comes an obedience to God's law and with it a righteous and just society. So fundamentally, this is about a restoration mission, saying everything in the world has been twisted by sin. And yet the servant has come to put everything right, to restore everything to God's design and order. And there's a now and a not yet about this mission. There's one sense that the the servant established this uh, mission, established uh, this work uh, when he came. In the incarnation, verse six, he says, I will give you as a covenant for the people. Well, on the cross, Christ established a new covenant that all people who believe in him can be washed clean by his blood and enter in to become pe- people who recognize the reign of God. In one sense, he's established it. But in one sense, it will only be complete when Christ has established his reign in all of the earth. That verse four, the coastlands wait for his law, the ends of the earth until Christ has established his reign to the ends of the earth. 
Of course, that will only be complete when Christ returns to judge the world and to establish his rule and reign in total, in totality on this earth. And we now sit between those two times. It's like we are watching verse four in action. We're watching Christ's kingdom spread, his justice spread across the world, not in a kind of territorial acquisition like a game of risk that as as countries are taken over by Christ, but as Christ comes to reign in the hearts of men and women, as men and women recognise Christ and and God's uh, kingdom comes and expands. The great problem is, as we consider the the servant's global mission, is that many of us don't share the enthusiasm that uh, this passage speaks of at the servant's work. Think about verse 10 when he says, sing to the Lord a new song, his praise from the ends of the earth. He's saying it's almost you've got to imagine like the servant, the, the servant, the great hero of history has been announced and the nations are cheering and they're, they're rejoicing that he's arrived. Think about like the way a, a star player might come out of the pitch and the stadium will just erupt in praise and glory. Many of us don't share that same enthusiasm for the servant's mission. It feels detached from our own lives. We might feel vaguely positive when someone becomes a Christian, but it's not a source of delight. I think this passage speaks to that uh, problem in a few ways. First of all, I think many of us feel like uh, this servant's mission is disconnected from the real problems of the world. If if I was to ask you, what do you think are the main problems of the world? You might say we live in a divided society, mutual submission, uh, suspicion, uh, bigotry, racial prejudice, greed, economic inequality. You might say it isn't immediately obvious how Christ's mission in the world relates to these things. And there's really there's two problems behind that. One is that our vision or understanding of sin is too thin. We fail to see the way that the world is actually ruined by sin. Sin is not just a kind of uh, sense to which we've kind of made a few mistakes or not measured up to God's holiness. Sin is like a pollutant that has got into the water and has then tarnished everything. It's a corruption that affects every part of society. Think about our family life. Think about how the way that sin has fractured relationships, the, uh, the pride has destroyed, or think about adultery, all sorts of things that destroy marriages, that lead to chronic divorce, that lead to fatherlessness, to, to marital strife and abuse. Think about work life. Think about the way that greed or that kind of uh, desire to puff oneself up leads to all sorts of rancor within workplaces or, or oppression of uh, workers. Or think about our digital lives, the the pride or or the wanting to to prove oneself that lies behind so much of the rancour on social media. See, sin has led to a a fragmentation of society and a non-flourishing of human relationships. And when we consider the pervasiveness of sin, until we deal with the problem of sin, we cannot hope to transform society. It's not to say that we don't want good laws, we don't want a, a just society, But we know that when we see the full scale of sin, the only thing that will transform truly is an answer, an antidote to the problem of sin. Second of all, I think it's that our gospel is too small. I think partly it's because we've had a a too small vision of the gospel. We've articulated a gospel that says, um, come to Jesus and receive forgiveness. But what we've what we failed to say, what we failed to, to articulate to people is that The servant's mission goes beyond merely offering forgiveness. The servant's mission is to establish justice. It's much more than the forgiveness of sins. It's about the restoration of all that is broken, about setting everything right. It means that the gospel should change us in radical and surprising ways. It should make us radically generous, willing to uh, 
share with those in need. It should make us a, a force of love and blessing in our society. It should make us people who are, who are known, who are defined by our love for neighbour, a willingness to serve and love those around us. It should lead to a total transformation. We need to restore our confidence that the gospel leads to the kingdom coming, reigning, Christ reigning in, in our hearts and lives changed and transformed. Second of all, I think sometimes this mission, the servant's mission, it sounds good in, in, in kind of big wide terms, but on an individual basis, it feels unloving. There's a sense to which to try and in, help someone to embrace Christ, uh, to enter into his kingdom feels morally questionable. feels like you're forcing your beliefs on someone. And the, actually, I think what, what we fail to see is that it's actually the most loving thing we can do. Here, the servant's mission in verse seven, a light for the nations to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon and from the prison, those who sit in darkness. It says, actually, we've been given a part to play in the servant's mission, in, the, in his ongoing work of releasing the captive, of opening the eyes of the blind. As we are called to introduce Christ to those around us, to, uh, to, to invite them to, to recognise that the king, him as king, is actually an invitation to to bring people into true, lasting freedom. See, I think what it, the problem is we've imbibed our culture's assumptions that people will be happiest when they're free to pursue their desires. See, the Bible tells a very different story. In Titus 3, describing their life before Christ, he describes people as being enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. Rather than being free without Christ, actually what it's saying is people are enslaved by all sorts of different desires. This can take all sorts of different forms, but think about the way you might be controlled by a desire for success. Unable to stop working because you just feel like you have to prove yourself. You have to establish your name in the world. Or controlled by the opinion of others. Constantly seeking to uh, do certain things to your body or to spend thousands of pounds on your appearance because you want to be an object of desire. It may, may look like freedom, but actually you're being controlled by those desires. It's only when you encounter the love of Christ that you find a new freedom, a freedom to worship and enjoy God, a freedom to no longer be defined by the, by the opinion of others uh, or to what, any kind of performance, whether that be in your success or, or your looks or your wealth. No, a freedom to become who you were intended to be. This should radically reorientate our understanding of what it means uh, to introduce folk to Christ. It says we're actually we're bringing them freedom. We're releasing the captive. We're helping prisoners to come out of darkness. It's an incredible privilege. But some of us, when we look at the servant's mission, we may feel unenthusiastic because it feels too slow. When we look at the world around us, we might say we don't see the manifestation of, of justice. We don't feel like the kingdom's come. It feels like we're in a deeply broken society. I think what we're missing is the hiddenness of the kingdom. You have to see the posture of the servant. He doesn't come announcing his rule uh, or violently asserting his rule in a kind of territorial conquest. No, the kingdom comes as individuals surrender their lives to Christ. Even in lockdown, we've seen a number of people come to faith uh, in the church community, uh, in different folk uh, we've, been, we've been talking to and doing our salt course and all sorts of things. And, and what, what you would have missed is that actually their lives are being reshaped. They're learning what it looks like to follow Christ. They're, they're, they're experiencing what it means to forgive others, to rela relating differently to, uh, to those around them. Maybe their whole life direction is changing. Actually, we're seeing that God's kingdom is coming, is taking possession of new territory and transforming lives. But it's, but it's completely hidden. You wouldn't know it unless I told you. 
But I think ultimately this passage is speaking to that sense of incompleteness when it says in verse four, he will not grow faint or be discouraged. Don't give up. Don't give up because the servant won't give up. He won't grow faint until he has established his kingdom on this earth. Christ is coming back to judge the living and the dead and to establish his kingdom. And until then, we, we say, um, come, Lord Jesus, come, Lord Jesus. And we continue the slow and faithful work of introducing those to, folk to Christ and seeing his kingdom come in their lives. So when we see the announcement of this kingdom, you have to ask, how will you respond to the announcement of Christ's government? If you're a Christian, then you have to ask, have you made the expansion of Christ's kingdom and the establishment of his rule on this earth in the lives and the hearts of those around you your overriding priority? I don't, I'm not suggesting that you need to leave your job and become a missionary, although it's no bad thing. But I think what it means is a kind of intentionality, being intentional in our relationships, being intentional with the people who God has placed us around, saying, perhaps you've placed these people around me so that I might be a blessing to them and to point them towards you. It means being intentional with our finances, investing in kingdom expansion. It means intentional with our prayers. I think it's about fundamentally changing our orientation to be to be supported, to be cheering on the, the servant as he expands his kingdom in the earth. But if you're not a Christian, you must hear this divine proclamation. Hear the fact that the great hero of history has arrived and he will not rest until he's established his kingdom, his justice, his reign in all the earth and he demands that he reigns in your life. This is a choice here. Will you submit to him? Will you recognise him as Lord or will you spend eternity away from him? See, there's that uh, progressive catchphrase nowadays, the wrong side of history. This, this is saying to really be on the wrong side of history is to, be, to miss the suffering servant who will reign for all eternity, who may have come in complete humility. It may have been easy to miss him, but actually the very worst thing you can do is to be on the wrong side of history and to miss this great hero and the kingdom that he is proclaiming. Because when he returns, he will return in a different posture, not as a meek servant, but as the king, wanting every knee to bow before him. So that invitation is always there for you if you're not a Christian. So as we turn to worship then, I just want to really remind you of the beauty of the servant. The Christian, that as a Christian, you can rejoice, that you can draw near to the throne of God, whatever the state of your heart. The father welcomes you. The servant welcomes you. Come to me. All who are weary, those bruised reeds, those broken, those uh, nearly smouldering wicks, you're welcome. See the beauty of the servant. Jonathan Edwards said this, there is no love so great and so wonderful as that which is in the heart of Christ. Let us behold the beautiful servant and rejoice that he has stooped low to our level, that he has taken on our weakness and ultimately was bruised so that we might be restored. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, we want to thank you for your incredible work. I want to thank you for your incredible willingness to come to this earth, to take your servant posture, to lay down your life for us, to be willing to be bruised, ultimately to die. Lord, we thank you that that wasn't the end of the story, that even though you were willing to suffer death, that one day every knee will bow 
says, therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Lord, we want to join in with the crowd of angels in, in kneeling before you, in recognizing your majesty, in recognizing your lordship. Lord, we welcome your reign in our lives. We ask that you would make us servants in your image. Ask that you would give us that same gospel humility that doesn't want to puff itself up, but instead is willing to go low and to serve those around them. Lord Jesus, we're so grateful that your kingdom has come. So grateful that you have established your justice on the earth now, that we recognize you as Lord. Lord, help us to participate with you in your kingdom expansion. Help us to join with you. Help us to join with the nations in rejoicing that your kingdom has come and rejoicing that your kingdom is expanding. Say, come, Lord Jesus. Come and rule in our hearts and send us out as your people, eager to do what is good, eager to be faithful to you and your calling. Because you're so worth it, Lord. Amen.